You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In this session of the Course on the Sacraments for the International Catholic University, we'll be dealing with the Sacrament of Sacraments. That's the phrase that Thomas Aquinas used to describe the Eucharist, the Sacrament of Christ's Body and Blood. I think that when it comes to understanding the sacraments, one of the greatest problems that we have as modern-day Christians is that we're not sufficiently steeped in the Old Testament. There's so many dimensions of the ancient covenant and the dispensation of the patriarchs and the prophets and the kings that we don't understand, that we're not familiar with, that oftentimes we miss so much of the sacraments and what they mean, particularly when it comes to the Eucharist. And so before I talk about the church's teaching on the sacrament of the Eucharist, I feel like I really need to do a little review of the Old Testament and particularly of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Because one of the big issues about the Eucharist really is, is it really a sacrifice? And if so, how is it a sacrifice? Is Christ really present? That's a second issue. If Christ is really present, how is he present? Is his body and blood present? And then thirdly, is this really a meal? Do we really eat the body and blood of Christ in this meal? So sacrifice, real presence, and meal. Those are three very important components to the whole discussion and understanding of the Eucharist. And if we don't understand the Old Testament sacrifices, we can't really understand how they all fit together. Let's look at the sacrifice of Israel. I'd like to recommend a book to you. Unfortunately, the book is out of print. It's a book called Ancient Israel, and it's two volumes. It's in the course bibliography. It's written by a priest by the name of Roland DeVoe. Roland DeVoe, a Dominican priest, was one of the great pioneers in Catholic biblical studies in the 40s and the 50s. And he worked in Jerusalem at the École Biblique there. That is a school of biblical studies founded by Dominicans. And it had a prominent role in the deciphering and examination of the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the 40s. But anyway, Roland wrote this book called Ancient Israel. And one volume is Religious Institutions. And it talks about all the religious customs, the feasts, the festivals, and the sacrifices, the priesthood. It's a wonderful survey of Old Testament life and pulls together from all different passages the information you need to understand the sacrifice of Israel. So I'm going to talk about those sacrifices now because they really help us when it comes to understanding the Eucharist. First of all, when we think sacrifices, we tend to think of the Holocaust. The Holocaust is when an animal is killed and then the entire thing is burnt on the altar as a sacrifice to God. It's important to know that that animal sacrifice, the Holocaust, is a very solemn one indeed. It is not the most common sacrifice of ancient Israel. The most common kind of sacrifice was a sacrifice that is called a number of different things. Sometimes it's called a thanksgiving sacrifice. Sometimes it's called a peace offering. Other times it's called a votive offering. But it is when a family in gratitude to God for something that God has done, brings an animal that is sacrificed by the priests. The priests get a choice portion of it. 
God gets the most important part, which is the blood. The life is in the blood of a thing. So the blood is poured out on the altar. And the fat, of course, is given to God because that's the best part. We don't think that way now, but that's the way they thought then. And the rest of the animal is butchered and given to the family. And the family eats this animal in a solemn meal. And that meal is called oftentimes a peace offering or a Thanksgiving meal. But the meal is an important part of the sacrifice because the animal is consumed by God and now the rest of it is consumed by the people. So how do you establish fellowship and communion between people? What do families do together to celebrate their unity? They have meals. So the meal shared by God and the people of the sacrificial victim, the consumption of this victim together, it really strengthens and reaffirms the bond, the family bond between God and his people. Very important human reality that is a very important religious reality in ancient Israel. Now, if you don't eat the victim, you don't share in the fruits of the sacrifice. That's the way a Thanksgiving sacrifice was. Now, the greatest Thanksgiving sacrifice or the greatest sacrifice of this kind in the Old Testament is the Passover sacrifice. The lamb is sacrificed. It's really a sacrifice here and it's offered to God. The blood goes to God, the fat goes to God, a portion goes to the priests. And then the family takes the lamb home and eats it in a solemn meal. And it's a meal that recalls the covenant. It recalls a great act of salvation whereby God saved the Israelites from losing their firstborn when the firstborn of the Egyptians were killed. And the blood of the lamb is the sign, the sign that Israelites are to be spared. And they eat the lamb that is sacrificed and whose blood is their protection. Now, let me just point this out. If you don't eat in the sacrifice of the Passover, if you don't eat that lamb, you cannot share in the reality of the Passover. When you eat the Passover supper, it's as if you were there. You are present again, according to the rabbis, at the Passover, the ancient Passover event where God saved his people from Pharaoh. This has a lot to do with the Eucharist and what it means. It was, in fact, at a Passover, according to the Synoptic Gospels, that Jesus instituted the Eucharist. He transformed an ancient covenant meal into a new covenant meal. The ancient covenant meal was a meal where the victim of the sacrifice was eaten. And in the new covenant meal, it's the same thing. In the Eucharist, it is indeed a sacrifice. It is indeed a sacrificial meal whereby the victim is consumed. In this case, the victim is not an animal. It is the God-man, Christ himself. And he's consumed under forms, under signs, bread and wine that are normal human food and drink. So the Eucharist really is something that can only be understood against the backdrop of ancient Israel. And one other point I want to make regarding ancient Israel, the very first covenant on Sinai was a covenant that was sealed in two events. This is at the foot now of Mount Sinai. You know, the people received the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. There was a great theophany where God showed his power and glory in Exodus 19. Then you have the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. The people say yes. In Exodus 24, this covenant is ratified. It's sealed. And it's sealed through a sacrifice of animals. And half of the blood is splashed on the altar from these animals. Half is sprinkled on the people. And then Moses and the elders of the people go up the top of the mountain. And it says very, very quickly that they were amazed that after seeing God up there, they were still able to eat and drink. Now, that reference shows us what they were doing up the top of the mountain. They were having that sacrificial banquet. They were eating the victims of the sacrifice, and therefore they were celebrating their communion, the communion between God and them, 
by sharing the same food. That's what was going on there. So the ancient covenant, the first covenant, was ratified through a bloody sacrifice and through a meal. The new covenant is ratified the same way, through a meal that happens the night before the bloody sacrifice. And sacramentally, under sign, the victim is eaten under the signs of bread and wine. Let's talk about the institution of the Eucharist for a minute. Was it, in fact, a Passover meal? Well, quite frankly, John seems to indicate not, and the synoptics clearly indicate it was. We don't really need to argue a whole lot about the exact night when the celebration of the, the Last Supper was held, whether it was a Passover meal or not, but it's very clear that all four Gospels intend us to understand the events of the Last Supper and the crucifixion against the backdrop of Passover. John, as a matter of fact, is very Passover-oriented. He has Christ dying at the very moment that the Paschal lambs are sacrificed in the temple. It's in John's Gospel that Jesus is called by John the Baptist, the Lamb of God. So whatever way you cut it, the sacrifice of Christ and the meal of the, the night before he died is against the background of the Passover celebration. And what we really need to talk about right now is the essence and the form of the sacrifice of the Mass. And here is what we mean by the essence and the form. Okay? The essence of the Eucharist really is simply this, the self-offering of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, under the forms of bread and grape wine. This is something that the Eucharist is really about, and it's something the church can't really change. Now, the form of the liturgical celebration has changed and can change. It changed in the first century. It's changed over the centuries. And it's not something that we can talk about here. It's a fascinating subject, how the outward celebration of the Mass has changed. But I'll point out that today, the celebration of the Mass varies from rite to rite. The Byzantine liturgy on Sunday is different from the Roman liturgy that's celebrated a few parishes over on the same Sunday. They're both Catholic liturgies. The essence of the Eucharist is the same, but the form is different. The way in which it's celebrated is different. And that's totally appropriate because the Catholic faith is really about unity and diversity. It's not about uniformity in style. So let's talk right here in this class. We have to stick with the essence of the Eucharist, of the sacrament. The essence that does not vary from age to age or from right to right, but is constant. What Christ instituted and what it means. What I want to point out right now is that, number one, the matter... The sign that is used is the same and must remain the same. The matter is wheat bread. In the Latin rite, that wheat bread is unleavened because it's connected with the Last Supper as presented in the Synoptics, a Passover meal using unleavened bread. The Eastern churches use leavened bread. Whether it's leavened or unleavened is not essential for validity, but it must be wheat bread because that's what Christ used. And we'll talk about the meaning of wheat bread in a minute. The other element, the other symbol is grape wine. Grape wine has a lot of different meanings, but nothing else can be substituted for it, except in the case the Pope has ruled of alcoholic priests who can't tolerate one bit of alcohol. In that case, grape juice can be used. But what Christ used was grape wine, and so we're bound to use that, except in that extraordinary circumstance. What's the meaning of bread? Well, there's not one meaning. Bread has multiple meanings. 
And I want to point all of you to a book that I think is extraordinary in helping people understand the richness of all the sacraments. And right now I'll mention it particularly because it's so wonderful in helping bring out the meanings of wine and wheat bread in the Old Testament. And that book is The Bible and the Liturgy. The Bible and the Liturgy was written by Jean Danielou, a Jesuit who died in the 60s, but who before his death was made a cardinal. And he was made a cardinal by the Pope because of his extraordinary contribution to theology. He was an expert in the fathers of the church. And this book is really about, in the fathers of the church, the way in which the correspondences are pointed out between the sacraments and the biblical history from Old Testament to New, all the symbols that are found in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So the fathers of the church, the New Testament biblical authors, saw these wonderful correspondences. They saw Jesus' use of wheat bread in connection with all the ways in which wheat appears in the Old Testament and bread. Same thing with wine. So I'm just going to go through them for a few minutes. Bread is the basic nourishment of people in the biblical times and many other places, particularly in the Mediterranean world. Wheat bread it was the basic nourishment, the basic food. And unleavened bread, which is used in the Church of the West, recalls very clearly the slavery of Egypt and the Passover celebration where the liberation of God's people is celebrated. So the New Covenant recalls that Old Covenant in the very use of bread. It also recalls the manna of the desert where God fed his people. As they made their way from slavery to freedom and to the promised land, God fed them in the desert along their pilgrim way for 40 years. And Deuteronomy 8.3 says that God gave the manna to teach them something, that it's not by bread alone that man lives, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So manna recalls the nourishment of God's providence, but also the nourishment that comes from heaven, the bread of God's word. It also recalls that mysterious figure, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, or the king of peace, who appears in Genesis rather mysteriously and who offers a sacrifice not of animals, but an unbloody sacrifice of bread and wine. He is a king who is also a priest, and so he's a sign of Christ. He recalls Christ the priest who is also king, the priest who offers himself, the priest who makes himself available to us under the forms of bread and wine. There's a cereal offering in the Old Testament in Leviticus 2, the mina. There's the showbread in the sanctuary that is there in the Old Covenant laid out before God. There is the fact that wheat is made by multiple grains that are ground together and made one through moisture, through the baking process. So that one loaf represents many scattered grains come together. And so in the Didache, a very early document from the early second century, that bread is seen as a sign of the unity of the body of Christ, which is the church. So there's all these allusions as to what bread means. How about wine? Well, wine is very, very precious. In the Old Testament, you don't drink wine, or in the New Testament as well, except on special occasions, when you have guests, when you have feasts. So it's a precious offering. It has very positive connotations, and it has also very sad connotations, because obviously having alcohol in it Wine can drug a person. Wine can cause problems. And so when people are being judged by God, it's often symbolized in the Old Testament by talking about the cup of God's wrath, drinking this cup that causes one to stagger, that causes one to walk around in a crazed fashion. Look at Psalm 60, verse 3, where it says, You made your people go through hardship. You made us stagger from the wine you gave us. 
Look at the cup of suffering, the agony in the garden. Jesus talks about not wanting to accept this cup. So the cup symbolizes the wrath of God, the punishment that comes because of sin, the cup of suffering. Jesus says to the mother of Zebedee's sons, when she asks if they can sit on their right and left, can they drink the cup that I have to drink? So there's this cup of suffering, this cup of wrath. But on the other hand, wine symbolizes joy, celebration, messianic banquet, the wedding feast of Cana where Jesus makes the most excellent of wines, symbolizing the beauty and the richness of the new covenant that he is about to usher in through his death and resurrection. So wine gladdens the heart of man, it says in Psalm 104. It cheers God and men, it says in Judges 9, verse 13. It also, one must understand, is the blood of a grape. It's only obtained by the crushing of the grape. And even when the skin of the grape is allowed to sit there for a while, it reddens the wine, so it's a natural sign of blood. In the Old Testament, blood equals life. Part of kosher law to this day is one must not consume flesh that has blood in it. The blood has to be completely drained out. Why? Because life is sacred to God. Even animals' life is sacred to God. It belongs to God. And wine symbolizes that blood, which is the life of a thing. So the wine symbolizes of the Eucharist the blood, not just of an animal, but the blood of the God-man. The life of God himself is symbolized by that wine. So there's a lot of different and wonderful meanings of these two elements that go into the Eucharistic celebration. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the issue of sacrifice. The early church saw the Eucharist as a sacrifice. It was only in the 16th century, in the Protestant era, that we see tremendous objections regarding this idea of the Eucharist as a sacrifice. Why was there objection to it? Well, it's very clear. That the Protestant reformers want very much to emphasize that Christ's sacrifice on Calvary cannot be repeated. It is all-sufficient and it is for all time. That's clearly taught in the letter of the Hebrews. That is clearly Catholic doctrine. What Protestant reformers were concerned about was that Catholics were understanding the Eucharist, they thought, to be a addition to Calvary, a repetition of Calvary, a re-crucifixion of Christ. Neither did Christ need to be re-crucified, they thought, nor could anything be added to Christ's sacrifice. So we could add nothing. We could do nothing in addition. For all these reasons, they really grated against them to hear of the Eucharist spoken of as a sacrifice. For Luther, the Eucharist was a proclamation that Christ laid his life down in the past for us. It was not a repetition of that sacrifice, that he didn't want to speak of it as sacrifice. In fact, all the Protestant reformers rejected this idea of the Eucharist as sacrifice. Now, let's just look at the early patristic evidence. In 1 Clement 44, the first letter of Clement was written around the year 95, so it's very old. It's probably written around the same time as John's Gospel. And there, the book is really about the leaders of the church, the ordained leaders of the Corinthian church have been deposed. And one of the things that is said about them is that, you know, the whole letter is about the fact this is wrong, that the leaders of the church can't be just chosen willy-nilly. They can't be deposed and made at will of the congregation. But the point here in talking about that, it's fascinating that Clement talks about the bishops as, he quote, men who have offered the sacrifice with innocence and holiness. What is he talking about? Obviously, it's the Eucharist. 
these men who were leaders of the church, they're known for the fact that they were the ones who offered the sacrifice. And they did it in holiness, in innocence. So the Eucharist is seen there as a sacrifice. And the leaders of the church are those who offer the sacrifice. In the Didache, which was written around probably around the year 125 in its final form, but its component parts probably going back to the late first century. It says this, On every Lord's Day, his special day, come together and break bread and give thanks. First, confessing your sins so that your sacrifice may be pure. That recalls what Jesus says. If you are on your way to the altar to offer sacrifice, and remember your brother has something against you, go make peace with your brother. By the way, this is the reason for the kiss of peace in the early church. Before going to communion, everyone offered each other a sign of peace, symbolizing that none of us have any unforgiveness and bitterness in our heart toward our brothers and sisters. That's the meaning of the kiss of peace, of the sign of peace. But anyway, look what is said here. The Eucharist is understood as a sacrifice. The sacrifice must be kept pure. Anyone at variance with his neighbor, says the Didache, must not join you until they're reconciled, lest your sacrifice be defiled. For it was of this sacrifice, the Eucharist, that the Lord said, quote, Always and everywhere offer me a pure sacrifice, unquote. That is a quote from Malachi 1.11. Malachi 1.11 is about priests who are offering polluted sacrifices. And the prophet predicts not that in the future good priests will offer clean sacrifices in Jerusalem, but that someday all throughout the world, not just in Jerusalem, but all throughout the world, the Gentiles will offer a clean, pure sacrifice to God. And the church, all throughout the church, you find in the first and second century that this text is understood as predicting the Eucharist, the clean sacrifice offered throughout the world by the Gentiles. So throughout the church, people spoke of the Eucharist in terms of sacrifice. Every father of the church speaking on the topic talks about it. And it wasn't really until the 16th century that this objection arose. The Council of Trent addressed this objection. And it tried to teach clearly that the Eucharist can never be understood as a repetition of Calvary. Calvary could not be repeated. Calvary, like the Protestant reformer said, could not be added to as if it were insufficient. But Calvary could be made present again because it is the act of an eternal person. And in some way, it is a central act of all human history and transcends time. God is timeless. Everything is present to him. So the sacrifice of Christ in Calvary and the resurrection three days later, that is an event that saves the world and that needs to be made present again for each one of us here and now and applied to our need, applied to our wounds, to our sin. And that's what the Eucharist is about. It represents it represents in the sense of re-presenting, making present again this great act of salvation. It's just what the rabbis thought was happening when people celebrated every year the Passover. In the Passover, the event of salvation is somehow made present again. The person who celebrates it participates in it. That's what the Eucharist is about. It's about celebrating the eternal power of Christ's death and resurrection and making that very really present again so that we can participate in it. That's the way in which the Eucharist is Christ's sacrifice represented.
It's an unbloody sacrifice. It's the same sacrifice of the cross made present again in an unbloody way. It's a propitiatory sacrifice. It forgives sins because that's the nature of what Christ did on the cross. If it's made present again, it has the power to deal with sin. The sin of those who are present, the sin of those who can't be present. So for the living and the dead, we pray that the power of Christ's sacrifice obliterate, wipe out, heal the wounds of sin. Okay, so that's the way in which Trent taught that the Eucharist is in fact a sacrifice, but it had to be understood properly. And it addressed the concerns of Protestant reformers. I think that there's some other things that need to be said about the way in which the Eucharist is a sacrifice. Vatican II and the Catechism of the Catholic Church in various places teach on this, and I just want to pull it together and talk about the sacrifice of Christ in three ways. First of all, the Eucharist is a sacrifice of praise. It's a sacrifice of praise and thanks. And that's something that all Protestant Christians have no problems accepting. And it's something the Catholics need to understand is in fact part of the sacrificial character of the Eucharist. On Sunday when we go to the Eucharist, we say a long prayer of thanks. The priest says a Eucharistic prayer. And that gives the name to the celebration. That's why we call it the Eucharist. It's a prayer of thanks for creation. It's a prayer of thanks for salvation. It's a prayer in which every person can personalize interiorly this great prayer of thanks and praise. We can thank God for all the natural blessings He's given us, and we should. And we can thank God for our personal salvation history, as I often do, thinking about the time when I was far away from Christ and the wonderful ways in which He brought me closer to Himself and saved me from serious sin and serious wrongdoing and really messing my life up. So the personal and the communal, natural blessings, supernatural blessings, it's the sacrifice of praise, of thanks, of adoration. That's one way in which the Eucharist is a sacrifice. Everyone's agreed on that. Second way, it's a sacrifice of Christ made present again, the way in which the Council of Trent taught. It's not a repetition, it's a representation of that once and for all act of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross, the head of the body, Christ, our Lord and God, offering himself up for our sins. But you know, the church also teaches that it is indeed the sacrifice of the church. Now this is a very important point. If it's a sacrifice of the church, does that mean that we're adding something to Christ's sacrifice? that we can do something. You know, part of the Protestant Reformation was realizing that salvation was a gift. It was not a work that we could achieve. We could not gain God's acceptance by works. The sacrifice of the church in the Eucharist has to be understood properly. First of all, remember that we are baptized into Christ Jesus and so becoming members of Christ, we share in everything. We share in His priesthood. And His priesthood is a priesthood of offering Himself for the sake of all. So as members of his body in the Eucharist, we join our lives to Christ's life. Actually, it's already happened. Our life has been joined to his in baptism. So we offer with Christ our head all of our sacrifices of the week, of the day, all of our hardships, our difficulties. We offer all of our work, everything that we do, we put together with Christ and offer that to the Father. We do it as members of him. It's as if he were expanding his own sacrifice through us. Now we have to admit that our contribution as members of his body is rather puny. And that's what part of the symbolism of the little drop of water that's added to the wine. You know, that's the way in which we understand our contribution 
to Christ's sacrifice to the Father. But it's part of the privilege of being joined to him that we are allowed to participate and are allowed to contribute. And so it's very real. That water becomes mingled with the wine and they become indistinguishable. So our sacrifices as members of his body added to his awesome once and for all sacrifice. That's really what we're talking about when we talk about offering ourselves together with Christ as a living sacrifice. And that's really what Paul taught us to do anyway. In Romans 12, 1 to 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Well, we're doing what Paul said. We're offering our bodies together with Christ because, in fact, we are members of his body. So that's really what the Eucharistic sacrifice is about. It is our sacrifice of praise and response to what God's done for us. It's what God has done for us. Christ's sacrifice made present again, that the sacrifice of Jesus, our head. And as members of his body, it's our sacrifice joined to his that we offer to the Father through him, with him, in him. Now, let me just point something out. The Second Vatican Council was the biggest event in the century in terms of the church's renewal and teaching. Part of what that council was about was the renewal of the liturgy. And more than anything else, the great aim of that council was to aid lay people in more active participation in the Eucharist. Many people have misunderstood that active participation to mean outward participation. We want to get people singing more. We want to get people carrying up the gifts. We want to get lay people reading the readings. Now, all those things are great, and indeed, the church intended for those things to happen as greater external participation in the Mass. But the real goal of this renewal, the real goal of more active participation was to lead lay people to more interior participation, to exercise their priesthood by offering themselves more heartfeltly to the Lord in the Eucharist. Really, the Eucharist is, every single time we go to Mass as Catholics, it's like an altar call. Altar call in the sense of many of our Protestant brothers and sisters have in, the, in evangelical churches where people are called to give their lives to Christ. They're called forward to make an active commitment to Christ. Well, we do that every single time we go to communion. Every single time we go to Mass and communion, we're offering ourselves to God. We're saying yes again. We're reaffirming our baptism and offering everything we are, everything we have, everything we do to the Lord, even though what we have is very small. And we're receiving back from him his life, his risen life in the Eucharist under the forms of bread and wine. That's what the Eucharist is really about. So in the Mass, we're not to be silent spectators. It's not something that's done that we observe. That's what it says in Sacrosanctum Concilium 48, and that's the Constitution on the Liturgy, Vatican II. The laity at Mass should not be silent spectators. And here's the very important line that really is a giveaway the giveaway as to what the purpose of the whole council is about and that whole document, Sacrosanctum Concilium. Here's what it says. Offering the immaculate victim, not only through the hands of the priest, but also together with him, they should learn to offer themselves. It's this self-giving that's the whole goal of the Second Vatican Council's document on the liturgy. Okay? Only secondarily is participation meant to be proper execution of external rites. Okay, so that's really what the sacrifice of the Eucharist is all about and what we need ourselves to practice when we go to the Eucharist. We need to actualize our own priesthood, 
consciously exercise that priesthood when we go to the Eucharist and teach other people to do the same. Okay, that's the issue of sacrifice. Let's move on to the issue of presence, real presence, the real presence of Christ's body and blood. We have to keep in mind something. The term real presence is a very, very popular, not technical term. It's not a term that you will find in official Catholic documents, let's say of the Council of Trent or of Second Vatican Council, or you won't even find it in the teaching of great theologians like Thomas Aquinas. The phrase real presence became popular in the 19th century with Anglicans who were trying to recover some sense of real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So it's not really an official term or Catholic term at all. It's a very vague term, as a matter of fact. It's okay to use it, but it's important to know that it's vague. We believe that God is really present everywhere. He's really present as creator. Theologically, if God were ever not to be present to anything in this world, it would cease to exist. God created everything out of nothing, and he ceaselessly holds everything in being by being present to it. And that's kind of hard for us to imagine because you know, we can't be present to many more than one thing at a time. But God is present on everything. He's focused on everything and keeps all things in being. So as creator, he's present to everything, even to the damned souls in hell, even to demons. If God were to be totally absent from any of them, they would cease to exist and be annihilated. So God is really present everywhere. And Christ as the second person of the Blessed Trinity is really present everywhere according to his divinity as creator. But there's another kind of presence, a presence as in grace, a presence of friendship, of communion. By that presence, Christ is present to many, in many, many places, to those who love him, to those who have faith. Okay, he's present in their souls, according to grace. He's present in the sacraments, in every sacrament, not just in the Eucharist. He's really present by the power of his grace. Okay, his divinity is present. See, that's something that we need to understand. Christ is really present according to his divinity as creator and in grace. He is present in many, many places. But there's a special way in which we believe that his humanity is also present. There's only two places where his humanity is present. It's present at the right hand of the Father in his risen body, his physical body, his natural body, which is, in fact, in a place at the right hand of the Father. We don't know exactly how to construct that and imagine that place, but he is locally present somewhere in his physical body. But, you know, physical bodies can only be present locally in one place at one time, even the risen body of Jesus Christ. That's not just my idea. That's taught by St. Thomas Aquinas. It's taught by the Council of Trent. So where else can his humanity be present? Where can his body be present? Well, the church teaches there's only one place, and that is in the Eucharist. His humanity is made fully present there under the forms of bread and wine, sacramentally. Now, that means that the Eucharist is not just about the real presence of Jesus. It's about the real presence of his humanity, of his body. Protestant and Catholic Christians don't have any problem seeing that Christ is really present everywhere, that he's present in every worship service, okay? But is his body present? Is his humanity present? That is what the disagreement is about. That's where Christians have a parting of the ways. So we have to distinguish between different kinds of real presence. In the Eucharist, Christ is present really in the Word, in the Word of God that's proclaimed. In the congregation, he's really present. He's present really in the priest through the charism of ordination. He's present uniquely and especially in the sacred species, the bread and wine that no longer are bread and wine, that are transformed into his body and blood. 
Okay, that's what the Catholic Church believes. Now, I just want to point out that the sense of the fact that he's really bodily present in the Eucharist is something that goes back to the first century, goes back to the scriptures and the fathers of the church. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 11, 17 and 34. It's the earliest account of the institution of the Eucharist that we have because Corinthians was written, most scholars would agree, in, in the 50s. And the Gospels are written, and most scholars would agree, somewhere between the late 60s and the mid-90s. So this is a very important text. And what we see here is that Paul is very upset with the Corinthians for a number of reasons. And in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, we see that there's division there. In the 11th chapter, we also see this division. There's division in the celebration of the Eucharist itself. It's preceded by a great meal, a common meal. It's called the love feast, an agape. But what Paul is upset about is that in this meal, the rich stick to themselves and have a lot to eat, and they're totally oblivious of the fact that there are poor Christians who have nothing to eat, and they don't share. And then they go to the sacrament of unity, the sacrament of charity. And Paul says they're eating and drinking condemnation on themselves because they're eating and drinking unworthily. And that's why many of them are sick and even dying. Now, does that make any sense at all? if this is simply an empty symbolic reminder. There's a very real sense that this is sacrilege here, that coming to the Eucharist in serious sin, the sin of division and lack of charity, that is sacrilege. That is in some way profaning the holy. Now we see other hints of a sense of real presence in the Eucharist, bodily presence. We see it in just the very institution accounts where Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, my body which is broken for you, my blood, which is poured out. That's sacrificial language about a sacrificial victim. comes right out of Old Testament language. And it doesn't make any sense at all if this is understood simply as an empty symbolic reminder. In the Old Covenant, one does not participate in a sacrifice unless one consumes the victim. So that's a very important point. John 6, 52 to 58. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life within you. You really can't understand John 6 without understanding him talking about the Eucharist. And the verbs that are used here are very graphic, deliberately graphic. The word for eat here is very brutal. It's like gnaw and chomp. Okay? And obviously people walked away from Christ when he said this. So it was understood that this was a hard saying. I mean, for a Jew to think of eating a flesh of a human being and then drinking the blood of a human being is totally repugnant. But nonetheless, Christ doesn't say, hey, wait a minute, come back, everybody. I was just talking about a symbolic reminder. He's talking about something real, something that is meant to be taken seriously. In Luke 24, where is it, how is it that Jesus appears to manifest himself to the two dejected men on the road to Emmaus? He sits with them, and it's in the breaking of the bread that they recognize him, and then he vanishes. He's truly present there in that experience of the breaking of the bread. So the early church had a very vivid sense of the real, true presence of Christ, but they didn't explain it in the New Testament scriptures, and neither was it explained in the earliest post-New Testament writings. But it's clearly there. Here's Ignatius of Antioch in one of his letters. Ignatius was the second bishop of Antioch after Peter and Paul and Barnabas were there. So he's pretty darn close to the apostles. He's writing around the year 110 or 115 when he says this to the Smyrnians 
a group of Christians in a town through which he's passing on his way to Rome. He's talking about a group of Christians who are not really Christians. They deny the reality of Christ's physical body. They're called docetists. He doesn't call them that, but that's what we call them now historically. Now, here's what he says about these docetists. They hold aloof from the Eucharist and from the services of prayer because they refuse to admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins and which, in his goodness, the Father raised from the dead. Consequently, those who wrangle and dispute God's gift face death. Now, that is a very, very strong affirmation of the reality of Christ's bodily presence in the Eucharist. Those who disagree are those who argue against the reality of the incarnation itself. That's a very important link. If you're queasy about God becoming flesh, then you're queasy also about God becoming present under the earthy forms of the bread and wine. Here's what Justin, St. Justin the Apologist says about the same reality, about Christ's body and blood. Now this is a fascinating piece because Christians were being persecuted by the Romans because of slanderous misinformation. And one of those pieces of information was the Romans heard that these Christians had love fests and they called each other brothers and sisters. And at these love feasts, they ate the flesh and blood of a man named Jesus. So what do the Romans think? Cannibals and sexual perverts having incestuous sex in orgies. That's what they thought Christians did, at least some of them. And Justin and many other apologists had to argue against these allegations. And it's fascinating. Justin does not say, hey, hey, wait a minute. What we do in this Eucharist is just a symbolic reminder. He doesn't say it. No one else says that. Here's what Justin says to explain to the Roman pagan world what the Eucharist is about. He says, for we do not receive these things, the bread and wine, as common bread or common drink. But as Jesus Christ, our Savior, being incarnate by God's word, took flesh and blood for our salvation. So also we have been taught that the food consecrated by the word of prayer, which comes from him, from which our flesh and blood are nourished by transformation, is the flesh and blood of that incarnate Jesus. That was written around the year 150 A.D. And shortly thereafter, Justin gave his life for Christ. Now, it's very clear that there's a realistic sense of Christ's bodily presence in the Eucharist. Faith in that is linked to faith in Christ's incarnation here as well. So it's a question of this. Are we comfortable? Can we accept that the invisible God makes himself present to us under a visible form of a very ordinary in commonplace element, namely bread, namely wine. That's the challenge to our faith. Now, that faith was unquestioned, really, and no one really sought to explain it a whole lot technically. People just accepted it and taught it until the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, a new kind of philosophy bursts into the world, the Western world, and that philosophy leads to more technical theology. And so theologians now start trying to explain how it is that Christ is really present in the Eucharist. It doesn't really happen until the Middle Ages, you know, around the year 1000 or so. In around the year 1000, someone tries to explain it and does a pretty bad job of it and botches it up. And it very much threatens the faith of many people. The name of the man is Berengarius. And we don't really need 
to uh, elaborate on what he taught. He was trying to explain that Christ is present in figure in the Eucharist rather than in truth. By in truth, he meant in a natural, physical way. But it was not a good choice of words. And there was a tremendous desire on the part of the church to make very clear that Christ was truly, really present bodily in the Eucharist. And that emphasis grew following this guy, Berengarius. St. Thomas Aquinas was very balanced in teaching about the Eucharist. And I just want to point out a couple of things that he says. There's a noun expression that comes into the Catholic tradition, and that expression is transubstantiation. It comes in around the time of Thomas Aquinas. Actually, it's prior to him. He didn't invent the term. It's dependent, really, in a certain way, on some language that comes from a philosopher named Aristotle. And Aristotle has a very specific way of understanding the word substance. Actually, it's not just Aristotle. It's the whole tradition of Greek philosophy. Substance does not mean a material thing. You know, we talk today about substance abuse. We're talking about chemical abuse, abuse of alcohol, abuse of drugs. And when we think substance, we think of something you can touch and feel and you can put under a microscope. But philosophically, substance means that which stands under a thing. Sub means under, stancia, stands. Something that is not what you necessarily see, but what is the hidden essence of a reality. It stands under its physical appearance. That's what substance means. And just slightly before Thomas Aquinas' time, around the year 1200, the word transubstantiation is used to describe the change that happens to bread and wine. And here's the way Aquinas and theologians explain it. In normal change, the substance of a thing, the essence stays the same, and the appearance changes. We're little babies. We're essentially the same creatures as old people, but our appearance is vastly different. Okay, but we're the same essential human being. So change is usually the change of accidents, of the appearances, while the substance stays the same. And what the church teaches, and what theologians taught in the 12th, 13th century is this, that, in the Eucharist, the exact opposite takes place. It's a unique kind of change. The accidents of bread and wine, the appearance stays the same. The essence of a thing changes. It's not a chemical change. It's not a physical change that one can see under a microscope. It's the change at a far deeper level, the essence of the being of these things. When the words of institution are pronounced, this is my body, this is my blood, when the Holy Spirit is invoked and comes upon the gifts, there's a transformation of essence. So Thomas Aquinas made very clear that we're not talking about a natural change. We're not talking about a physical change. We're talking about a sacramental change that's very real, but it's a different mode than a physical mode of being. So Christ's presence under the forms of bread and wine is as real as a physical presence, but it is not a physical mode of presence. It's a different kind of presence. So this is what Aquinas teaches. In this wonderful change, Christ gives us his whole self under the mode, under the forms of bread and wine, according to a sacramental mode. So what we have to distinguish is what is present from how it's present. What is present? Christ's body, blood, soul, divinity, his entire self. How is it present? It is not present physically. It is present sacramentally. Now, it's easier to say what the Eucharist is not than what the Eucharist is. Same thing about the Trinity, same thing about anything having to do with God. Okay? It's hard to try to nail in words perfectly the reality of God. So in the Eucharist, 
Can we describe exactly this mode of sacramental presence? No. The Council of Trent says, we can't. So words scarcely can describe this. Now, in the Protestant Reformation, the problem is people did not know Thomas Aquinas very well. Thomas Aquinas' theology had fallen into oblivion. And the theology that the Protestant Reformers rebelled against was a very poor theology indeed. It was a theology far from Aquinas and his genius and his balance. So when the Protestant Reformers objected to Catholic doctrine, they weren't objecting to Aquinas. They didn't know Aquinas. And that was kind of sad. What one reformer said, Zwingli, is that Christ's presence in the Eucharist, there really isn't any presence in the Eucharist. The Eucharist is simply an empty symbolic reminder. Christ can't be present. His body can't be present at the right hand of the Father and in churches around the world at the same time. It's impossible. Well, Aquinas would have said, you're right. The problem, though, is you're thinking that Christ's presence in the Eucharist is physical and local. No, it's not. It's a different mode of presence, so it is possible for him to be present all throughout the world and at the right hand of the Father at the same time. Okay, so that was a problem with Zwingli. Zwingli gave rise to the largest group of American Protestants, the Reformed Protestants, so the Calvinist, we also call the Reformed tradition the Calvinist tradition. But so Zwingli won out in terms of numbers of influence. Luther had a different theory. His theory is known as consubstantiation. He fought Zwingli tooth and nail on this Eucharist issue. Luther believed that Christ's body and blood was really present in the Eucharist, but for him it was present alongside of the bread and wine. The bread and wine were not transformed. So the Eucharist was both bread and wine and the body and blood of Christ. Now, I think that's pretty hard to really fathom, but that's what Luther taught. And it's important for us to realize there's not one Protestant position on the Eucharist. There are many. Okay, John Calvin taught something else again. He said Christ was really present in the Eucharist, but virtually his power was present, his grace was present, not his humanity, not his body and blood. So the Eucharist is a means of grace. Go to the Eucharist, receive communion, but it's a spiritual blessing you're getting. You're not truly consuming the body and blood of Christ under the forms of bread and wine. So there are a lot of different positions, and the Council of Trent really disagrees with them all and really reaffirms the Catholic tradition that Christ is truly, really, substantially present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, under the forms of bread and wine. That's what the church affirms after the Protestant Reformation. Okay, so it's not just his grace, but it's his entire self that's present in the Eucharist. Now, what I would just like to point out is this. The Second Vatican Council is concerned that we understand, number one, the church's teaching on the Eucharist as sacrifice and as real presence. But as a reform council, a council that's pastoral, it wants us to understand that Christ becomes really present, his sacrifice becomes really present, so that we can receive him. At the time of the council, there were many people who wrongly thought that they had to be really somewhat perfect in order to receive the Eucharist, that they had to go to confession the night before. There were a lot of people who didn't go to the Eucharist as regularly as every Sunday. So the council wanted to lead people into deeper participation in the Mass, including more frequent communion realizing that Christ becomes present so that he can be received. And also that the grace of the Eucharist be received through the right kind of disposition, that people prepare properly. Now, what's happened since the Council is many, many more people go to communion, but not many more people are prepared spiritually. 
And I would say, you know, from what I can see, that many, many people are less prepared than they were back in the 1950s and early 1960s. People are receiving, oftentimes, in a cavalier fashion. Many people have lost the sense of the reality of Christ's body and blood present in the Eucharist, and many who believe in Christ's real presence are not sufficiently preparing themselves in faith, in love, in repentance. Now, it's critical just to reaffirm something I said in the very first class. Though Christ is really present in all the sacraments, especially in the Eucharist, if we're not prepared to receive him, we are receiving the sacraments in vain at best. At worst, we're receiving them in a sacrilegious fashion. So I think that the pastoral task is not only to teach the doctrine of Christ's real presence, but it's also to teach the church's doctrine that we have an obligation to prepare ourselves, to arouse our faith, to repent of all unforgiveness, and come to the table of the Lord open, ready to receive him so that we can be transformed and changed. And I just want to recommend a book that I wrote for people precisely to give them ideas on how to prepare for the sacraments, how to receive the sacraments more effectively. It's called Exploring the Catholic Church, and it's an eight-chapter book, easy to understand for Christians who are not necessarily theologically minded. And it's also in video form. There's a series called Touching Jesus Through the Church that deals with a lot of the practical issues on how to gain more benefit from the celebration of the sacraments. And both of those things are available through visiting my website, which is www.dritaly.com. Those things are available in many bookstores and online. But I think our pastoral task, all of us, is to teach this to our families, to our religious education classes, the need for not only understanding doctrine, but also preparing ourselves more spiritually for the reception of the Eucharist. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.